0: Hey, it's Stephen Henderson. Today on the podcast, we are going to talk about transit, public transit inside cities and regions like Southeast Michigan and transit between cities like Detroit and Cleveland. Jake Berman is a writer, cartographer, and historian and author of a new book, The Lost Subways of North America, a cartographic guide to the past, present, and what might have been. We have a really interesting conversation with him about how we resurrect public transit in the United States, what some of the barriers are, and how we should be thinking about things like land use and zoning, the other things that might bolster public transit. Jake, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. It's great to have you here. So uh, let's talk about why America has such bad public transit systems, particularly when you compare it to other developed and some developing nations around the world? What's the answer to that question?
1: So the biggest thing is that the United States in particular gave up on public transport after World War II. The reasons are complex, but a lot of it comes down to the fact that the United States, decided to uh, get rid of its large-scale public transport networks in favor of freeways and cars during the prosperous years of the 1950s and 1960s.
0: And, uh, you know, if you tell that story from any city, I guess, in America, the, the, the city you'd tell it from uh, the most is Detroit, partially because this is the home of the domestic auto industry, uh, but also because of how aggressively I guess we dismantled uh, the public transit system uh, that that we have. Uh, talk about what that has looked like not just in Detroit where we are now and are struggling still to figure out a way forward but but in other cities, Around around America, um, you've written about a number of cities and the ways in which they have destroyed public transit.
1: Sure. So, the story of Detroit's public transport generally begins in the way that it did with most other cities. Uh, in Detroit, the public transit system was originally run by a comically evil monopoly called the Detroit United Railway. Now, if you think of the way that Um, the big tech giants are public enemy number one nowadays, like the Googles and Apples and Facebooks and so on. The Detroit United Railway was public enemy number one in the early 20th century because they controlled all transportation and the Model T and the other uh, automobiles that were invented in the early 20th century weren't yet universal. So at the time, if you didn't want to pay the fare, your option was to find somebody with a horse or to walk. Because of that, the Detroit United Railway exerted monopoly power over getting anywhere within southeastern Michigan. And when it came down to it in the 1920s, the um, the mayor of Detroit, a guy named Jim Cousins, was offered the choice of buying out the Detroit United Railway streetcar system locally or cooperating with the railway and deciding to uh, build a full-blown subway system in Metro Detroit around 1918-1920. At that point, uh, Cousins was a good government kind of guy. So he said, we are not going to cooperate with this rapacious monopoly. We instead are going to buy out the system, and then when we get some money, maybe about 1929-1930, we'll get to around to building a subway in Metro Detroit. Mm -hmm. That of course never happened because of the great depression. Then if you fast forward about 20 or 30 years after world war II, by that point, the um, Detroit embraced the freeway like nowhere else in the world because it was the center of the American auto industry. And at that point you start seeing the dismantling of local public transit systems and an unwillingness to invest in fixing what was already there. So there were a lot of whiz-bang plans in the 1950s and 1960s to build these kind of crazy ideas like, say, a monorail uh, running over Woodward, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, of course, that never really panned out because the suburbanization of Metro Detroit meant that both racial strife And um, a whole lot of uh, automobile center development happens. So if you go to a place like Warren, it's very, very different than if you are, say, at a, if you're closer in at even like, you know, Highland Park or Hamtramck, where the lots are smaller. They still have single family houses, but there's corner stores everywhere. It's not designed solely around the automobile. And from there, one thing led to another. And when Detroit hit its decline in the 1970s and 1980s, suddenly there was no ability for the uh, for the local governments to get along. So famously, Coleman Young started a bunch of fights with the suburbs. The suburbs fought back. And in the end, President Ford offered what's now three point two billion dollars in today's money to build a full scale subway system running all the way out to uh, M59 and at the other end going to the airport and then with another line going from um, from uh, Van Dyke through downtown Detroit and then back out to Southfield. That never happened because the city and the suburbs just could not get along with the racially charged politics of the time. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and and in other cities, what do we see? Uh, I, I came across uh, a, a, a piece that you did uh, about what happened in the Twin Cities in in Minnesota with with public transit. I mean, the idea of what happens here kind of replicating itself in in other cities is also, I think, an important an important data point.
1: Yeah, in the Twin Cities, the The destruction of the public transport network is kind of unique compared to everywhere else, because in places like Detroit or um, or Dallas or Los Angeles, it was a certain sort of death by neglect, a view that, you know, the spirit of the age is the automobile. So we should embrace this. Minneapolis is unique in the United States because there there really was a conspiracy to get rid of the transit system and it was spearheaded by the mob. Wow.
0: Wow. Uh, I, I want to talk a little about um, the things that we should be kind of thinking about for reprioritizing, I guess, uh, public transit here in in America. In our first segment, we were talking about this new money from uh, federal from the federal government to the state government to explore new rail lines it got me pretty excited to be honest when i heard about that just because we never talk about that in a serious manner here in in the midwest in particular um uh what are the things that we should be thinking about when we think about repairing all this damage that you're talking about that happened
2: sure
1: so i think that there is just to before I start, there is a division that we should make between intercity transit where, like, if you're rebuilding the Amtrak line to go at high speeds between, say, Detroit and Chicago, mm-hmm. that's that's more competing with the airports as opposed to, say, intercity transit where you're going from, say, downtown Detroit to Ferndale and so the challenge for intra city transit within metro detroit Mm -hmm. is one that i think should be approached by figuring out just what is wrong with the buses first you know get the basics right because local transit really only works when it is frequent it is fast it goes where you want to go and it's reliable so for instance Metro Detroit's buses maybe check one or two of those boxes. Uh, Pittsburgh's buses, on the other hand, check all four uh, because they have dedicated bus lanes on most of the major avenues. And on top of that, they have special roadways which are dedicated for buses only. And because of that, oftentimes taking the bus in Pittsburgh is faster than driving the freeway at rush hour.
0: So um, uh, when when we have things like streetcar projects in Detroit and other cities, which you know is is going on uh, now, um, how how close is that, for instance, to the kind of solution making that would have happened if we'd gone ahead with subway plans? I mean, uh, there there isn't, I think, uh, a whole lot of thought that building a subway in a city like Detroit in its current state would even be possible. I mean, uh, the, the, the physical barriers, of course, would be tremendous, but also the, 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 the dollar uh, restrictions. I mean, it's just we, we don't have money the way that we used to for, for things like that. But we do have a streetcar now that goes a very short distance from downtown Detroit up to, uh, the, Midtown, uh, to the Midtown area. Is that a good start? Is that a good approach to saying, okay, well, this is this is a way forward. This is a way to, to try to repair some of the damage that was done.
1: I think it's a good start. Um, I think that the streetcar needs to have some tweaks to make it uh, run more reliably. In particular, it really needs to have its own lanes for the entire route. But it is a good start. And I'm very cognizant of the fact that the streetcar project was is the cut down version of a light rail spine that was supposed to go all the way to Oakland County.
0: Yeah. And and if if we could build that to Oakland County and then add spurs that maybe went east and maybe went west, we'd be talking about something that at least is maybe the spine of a rational Uh, a rational transit system here in the region.
1: Yeah, I think so. And thanks to Judge Woodward, who planned all of these grand radial avenues 200 or 300 years ago, Detroit really does have a good street network for doing that. The other thing about it is that transit can be used to anchor a neighborhood. Hmm. So if you, um, like Chicago, for instance, has great examples of even during the Rust Belt period, where particular transit stations are able to act as a nexus for people to live around and to focus development there, which is something that the streetcar was designed to do in Detroit as well. Um, and given the way that so much of the city is still emptying out, um, I think it would be a good idea to designate specific areas. For that kind of focus. Um, if you, uh, because all of the great avenues in Detroit are spread out like fingers on a hand, you could easily take something like what is already on Woodward and say, well, we're going to do the same thing uh, on Michigan Ave in Corktown, or we can do it um, uh, like on Gratiot and Lafayette and all the other great streets that head out from downtown Detroit. And it's really – but that has to be coupled with a focus on developing those neighborhoods and anchoring those neighborhoods so that they really can survive over the long-term and be sustainable. Yeah.
0: Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Let's start today with Frank in South Lyon. Frank, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, thank you, Stephen. Um, you know, I uh, took a trip um, on the Greyhound because I could uh, from Ann Arbor to Detroit to Toledo to Cleveland. I took the Cleveland uh, uh, City Transit to the, and I hooked up with the Akron. Uh, system and I got to Hudson, Ohio, where my daughter lives. And uh, you know what? It worked out pretty good. The buses were a little raggedy. The uh, the stations are skanky at best. Uh, I did the, uh, the trip on the way back and um, we got to Detroit to go to Ann Arbor where I was going to get a ride and the bus just didn't show up. And, you know, I was a smart driver and I know all about DOT and everything, and Mm -hmm. I know about our system, buses just wouldn't show up. Mm. Uh, There was absolutely no information. All these people were wanting to get to the uh, Chicago bus, and then they were going to go on to Milwaukee and whatever. Uh, There was just no information. What I really do think is that, you know, if we start with this rail thing, we're handcuffed to the rails, uh the buses like the your your guest said you know they can uh, you know to put in special lanes and mm-hmm. you know to get the buses around traffic jams and things like that because they're so flexible pneumatic tires on the on the existing paved roads yeah. we could we could make a huge improvement in so many things but if we keep up with this rail thing i mean it's just you know it, it's just the the amount of money you know, that it costs to build it, and there's just not the demand, the ridership. I don't see it happening. That's, uh, well,
0: Frank, that's a really interesting perspective. Now, I'm, I've got to say, as you said, uh, you used to be a smart driver, so you might be a little biased in the way that you think about these things. Uh, uh, but but I absolutely hear what you're saying. I mean, this question of bus or rail or bus versus rail is, is kind of important because you're talking about finite pools of dollars. Uh, at least in the current funding streams, to be able to do these things, uh, Jake, what do you make of that? That strain is—is uh, is Frank right that chasing after rail that would look like it does in other countries is a distraction from upgrading the transit system that we have, which is mostly road-based, and and buses are are you know the the, the primary conveyors.
1: Uh, I think it's it really comes down to a question of using the right tool for the job. So for high for high usage routes, for instance, like if you were to upgrade the detroit Chicago line to international standards, you would have something that's time competitive with the airport and certainly faster than driving i ninety four the that basically makes sense, but if you're talking about lines from, say, Detroit to I don't know, Saginaw Grand Rapids, then you might not have the demand to support that level of infrastructure investment. But it really just comes down to using the right tool for the job. The other thing that I uh, want to point out is that American construction costs are significantly higher than in other countries. So um, just to give an example, in Los Angeles, it costs about double what it costs to build a mile of track or a lane of highway or whatever, as it does in Tokyo. And in addition to improving the physical infrastructure, I do think that there need to be reforms to streamline the process for getting construction done in the first place. Hmm. Because it's much easier to improve your infrastructure if you can use your money better.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I hear a lot of people talk about when they visit China, for instance, the incredible network of high-speed trains that they've developed to go not just between major cities, but to, to very rural parts uh, of that of that country. And they say, well, why can't we do that? Of course, if you go to Europe, uh, any of the countries in Europe, really, there's, there's much handier uh, rail, uh, to, to, to access uh, the, the point you're making about cost, though, I think is important and the cost differences between this country and those other countries. Can you talk a little more about why those cost differences exist and why we might not want to erase those cost differences? In other words, uh, that that uh, our standard of living and the way we structure our standard of living in this country kind of depends on some of those costs being what they are.
1: Well, I think it's more just a question of getting the getting the getting more for your money as opposed to reducing the cost altogether. Mm. So, for instance, Milan is. uh, Milan has a heavily standardized subway system, and because of that, they just copy paste the same station over and over and over with tweaks to the adapt the local geology. But there's not a whole lot of reinventing the wheel the way that we do in the United States. There's so much more custom design and so much less standardization that it's hard to have economies of scale. And in the old days there used to be those types of economies of scale. So the D DOT back when it was called the Department of Street Railways and it was running trains, ran the exact same type of trains that are used in that were used in Minneapolis, San Francisco, um Newark, New Jersey, they had the same type of train nationally, and that's just not the case anymore. Uh, The same thing goes for highway designs, where highway design more or less is standardized across the country, so you do get those types of efficiencies of scale. That just doesn't really happen in the United States, and you need to build out the bureaucratic infrastructure to do that type of standardization if you want to get more bang for your buck. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Let's go to Elliot in Southfield. Elliot, welcome to the show.
4: Hi, thanks so much. Uh-huh. Currently, actually not in Southfield, but on uh, U.S. 23 right now, uh, commuting between my home in Southfield and my work in Ann Arbor, mm-hmm. uh, which is a disability nonprofit. And this conversation just Um, is coming up constantly in the work that I do around why can't we seem to get a larger um, vision of public transit that actually serves the people who are in most need of getting places um, because they cannot do so independently or they can't afford a car. I'm also just, I I deal with this as uh, I drive to work as well, just how, much different my day would be if i didn't have to spend my time you know focusing for 45 minutes on driving whereas i could be doing um you know maybe more rejuvenating activity something to kind of decompress from work but i think that that is just to say that public transit has benefits that are more than just um more than just, you know, mobility-related. I think Mm. that there's definitely a lot of mental health and uh, well-being aspects to being able to hop on a train instead of the mental focus that it takes to drive a car Mm. uh, 40 miles a day.
0: Yeah. Uh, You know, Elliot, that's a great, that's a really great point. And uh, it's appropriate for you to be talking about that as you are driving uh, to work on US 23 between Detroit or Southfield and Ann Arbor. Uh, You know, uh, being able to not have to focus as much as you do when you're driving a car, I think would be good for all of our all of our mental health. Uh, Jake, uh, I want to get you to respond to what Elliot's talking about here.
1: Yeah, I think that's It's also important to prioritize that as the population ages. Somebody like my father, who is 80, should not be driving. And thankfully, my mother, who is younger, does more of the driving. But yeah, that is something that we should be thinking about. The other thing is that we should really take note of the way that we built cities and towns in the old days where Ann Arbor is a great example of this, where you have a lot of variety in the types of buildings. You have apartments mixed in with single family housing. You have neighborhood corner stores, those types of things. And since about 1960 or 1970, most new construction is not built like that. You know, it'll be mostly residential and then they'll have a strip mall that's totally separated and not within walking distance of the places where people live. it'll Or it'll all be single-family homes. There won't be any condos or a few apartment buildings here and there, which is dramatically different from the way that a town like Ann Arbor is built. And I think it would be very useful to go back to the old way of doing things because it means that people who cannot drive or shouldn't drive or who just don't want to drive can run their daily errands without having to turn on their car. Mm -hmm. Uh, As somebody who currently lives in New York City, I have everything that I need for daily life excepting for my office within a 10 to 15 minute walk of where I live.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean that the the jealousy that uh, I think rises up in in those of us who live in places like Detroit when we hear that is really powerful. Uh, I think we would all like a life that looked a little more, a little more like that. Um, I, 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 I want to have you talk a little about the city of Houston, which you've written about, is is doing rail differently than some other places. What is it that you like about what they're doing in Houston?
1: Yes, Houston is a fascinating place because they never decided to split up their city into residential, commercial, industrial spaces. They never had that kind of rigidity. So when it came time to build rail, they built rail only in the city center. They only built it on the busiest streets, and they allowed large-scale development to happen nearby. So one major factor in the rejuvenation of Midtown Houston is that the city allowed private developers to build lots of apartments and businesses near the station so you could create a walkable neighborhood pretty much out of nowhere.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, a lot of that gets to things like zoning and land use, which are, of course, policy questions that are decided by by public officials it does seem like in cities that are getting this right or closer to getting this right those zoning laws and land use policies are more in line i guess with the idea of of effective mass transit effective communities where people can get lots of of things done in a in a small and and uh, easily accessible footprint
1: I think there's something definitely to be learned from other cities, especially abroad, because they never got they never switched to suburban living the way that we did in the United States. So, for instance, Alcalá de Henares, which is outside of Madrid, I uh, studied there in college, has suburbs that are outside of the city and they're built on what used to be farmland. But the way they build them is dramatically different from the way them do them here. So there... They still have single-family homes, but they're built as townhouses with one parking space on a lot of maybe 2,500 square feet, which looks a lot like Midtown Detroit. Um, That's very – and they have apartment buildings that are maybe three to four stories, which, again, looks like Midtown Detroit. If you want something to look like that, though, you have to have your laws and your land use policy match what you want to see. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is is the number here on the phones. Alan in Gross Point, you're up next. What's on your mind?
2: Hi, uh, I'm actually not in Gross Point. I'm on I seventy five driving to Cincinnati, and I was I would <laughs> love a Detroit, uh, an I seventy five train corridor. Um, I've I've taken the train to Chicago a number of times. Um, it's taken me once four hours. Other times, it's taken me eight and a half hours. So that reliability factor has really come into play sure but when it comes into the interest city um and the buses if you look at the current bus map bus route map for metropolitan detroit it looks like a bowl of spaghetti um you have no idea where buses are going you could not just walk out on brashett avenue and step on a bus and know where it's going to take you um and I think that map was probably drawn at a given point in time to say, what's the most efficient way to pick up all of our riders. But that ch- next month as people's jobs and change and people and people move, but not having that ability to know I'm jumping on the Jefferson Avenue bus or the Woodward Avenue bus or the Michigan Avenue bus, people aren't going to, make the effort people don't know where it
0: goes yeah um you know that's something that has really changed around here alan over the last couple of decades i mean uh when i was a kid the bus system in detroit this is in the 70s and 80s was actually a really effective way to get around and it was pretty intuitive about where it went and uh you know the six mile bus went on six miles seven mile bus was on on sale and uh, you you could get around pretty easily. I think one of the driving kind of factors behind change there is the population loss in the city and the big gaps of quote unquote empty space and trying to figure out how to to create a system that re, you know reflects that or, or or honors that is 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 difficult. Um, uh, but but your point also about the ride to Chicago and the varying times which have to do with right aways really, who owns the rail. We've got a number of different things that, uh, that, that influence those problems. Uh, Jake, we've only got about a minute left, but I'll, I'll give you the last word in response to Alan.
1: Sure. I think that the reliability is a huge factor. There is, especially for long-distance travel, you really should have dedicated passenger corridors and dedicated freight corridors. There is a very interesting project underway between Las Vegas and Los Angeles, which is privately financed to run in the median of the 15 freeway. And it'll be really interesting to see whether that works out because they are building a high-speed line to international standards so you can beat the traffic on the 15.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Jake Berman, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today to talk about transit and the possible future of transit. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Today's episode of Detroit Today was produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Nate Bender. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Editing and mixing is by Connor Anderson. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Our podcast manager is David Lyons, and our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET Public Radio. If you love the conversations we have on Detroit Today, consider donating to WDET, the public radio station in Detroit that we call home. If you want to be a part of the conversation and call in, you can listen live every day on WDET.org or on the WDET mobile app. Or if you live in southeast Michigan and still love listening to good old-fashioned radio like me, tune in to 101.9.